So we are, uh, we're wrapping up Life and Doctrine today. This is our, our final week in this series. And uh, if you remember and you've been walking through with us over the last, I guess this is the eighth week, we have been looking at the historic beliefs of Christianity that Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. And not just in a way of let's be able to pass a theology test, but how does this affect how we live? How is this important in how we live our lives day to day? What we've been doing after each, uh, after each service in this series as well is we have been doing uh, a Q&A afterwards. So I just want to remind you we'll be doing the same today. This will be the last one we'll be doing for a little bit. So after the service, if you would like to hang around, you're, you're welcome to. We'll do a Q&A. I'll also have my phone number up on the screen during the, the, uh, the sermon today. If you want to text me a question that you don't want to kind of say out loud later, you're welcome to do that, and we'll tackle those questions afterwards. Well, let me do a little recap for us as we, uh, as we finish up. We started our first week talking about the Trinity. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, that our God is relational. That because our God is three persons, our God can, in his essence, be a God of love and community and others-focused. We talked our second week about the Bible, how we believe that these ancient writings of the Hebrews, as well as the writings of the apostles and in the New Testament, are inspired, that are breathed by the breath of God. That the Holy Spirit inspired imperfect human authors to create these writings that is how God has revealed himself to us. We talked in our third week about creation and made this distinction between there is a creator and there is creation. They're not the same. So we are not the creator. We are not the one in charge. We are the one who is created. But God made his creation good. And so our life lived out in God's creation, should be one that values what he made. We talked the next week about the fall, that even though God made creation good, humanity rebelled, and you and I, we live in a state where our hearts have been, have been brought far from God, that we have desires contrary to the will of God, that we have sinned, that we fall short of God's glory, that all of creation has been affected by this. But the good news, the next week we talked about salvation. That God, in His gracious act of redeeming His creation from the effects of the fall, sent the Son to come and live among us, to teach us His way, to die in our place on the cross, and to defeat death rising again. We talked about the church. That we're God's family. God's people, these people who have seen and experienced and have decided to follow the resurrected Jesus. And that brings us into community to live this life following Christ out together. Last week, we had a frank conversation about the reality of judgment and hell. That there are consequences for our sin. And even though it's uncomfortable to believe and, and we wrestle with, with how that works out, that God is gracious in providing the way out, providing cleansing for sin to provide hope for us. This week, we're going to talk about what I call the end goal. The end goal. About what happens life after death. What, what about heaven and eternity? And for those who 
are close to Christ, who are his, what does eternity look like? This is almost the, the better version of last week. Now, I think we need to be honest about the fact that most of our perceptions about this topic, about what happens to us after we die, about heaven or whatever language we want to use, is shaped a lot more by cultural depictions of uh, the afterlife, of these cultural folk semi-Christianity rather than scripture itself. There's a a story of uh, when the Russians made it to, to space before the Americans did back in the 60s. One of the Russian cosmonauts coming back, you know, a, a good uh, atheist communist came back to Earth and said, I saw no God, I saw no heaven. And, you know, you could imagine that, uh, that, that fueling the rhetoric and, and the, the um, propaganda of, of the Soviets at the time But really, that is dismissing what heaven or the afterlife or what our belief actually is. That heaven is somewhere above the clouds that you could get to with a rocket and to see it's not there, disprove it. We have pictures of heaven that's filled with harps and clouds and wings and angels. That that honestly, if if we're honest, it's kind of boring. The picture we have, the like Philadelphia cream cheese, halos, wings, and heaven. I love this this week. I wish I'd brought a magazine. Like, this, this picture of what the afterlife is, this place that's supposed to be the good place, in reference to the sitcom, if you've seen that, that is actually, like, no wonder ACDC sings about, like, how fun hell is going to be if these are the pictures of what heaven or the afterlife or what our eternity as followers of Christ is supposed to look like. It's boring. It's kind of lame. And it's a lot more fueled by sentimentalism than by Scripture. I did some digging. There was a book several years ago. You probably remember Heaven is for Real about this little boy who supposedly died during surgery or something and experienced heaven and then came back and his dad wrote a book about it. They made a lot of money. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, But on the website for this group, there's this frequently asked questions page. And all of the questions are like, is my dog going to go to heaven? Am I going to have wings in heaven? What's my halo going to be like? Like all these questions that are like, who cares about these things? Because you're trying to compare it to this this sentimental picture we have from cartoons about heaven rather than what God has actually revealed to us in his word about what happens to us after we die and for eternity. We're not going to be talking about wings and halos and harps and that kind of stuff this morning. Other than the fact that there's nowhere in scripture that says you get wings. Okay? Sorry to kill that for you. And we don't become angels either. That's like another thing. That, you know, often, you know, heaven needed another angel or something like that when, when someone passes away. We don't become angels. That's, that's not in Scripture. What we need to do this morning and what I'm asking you to do 
is for us to be able to kind of set aside the picture that we've built up over our lifetime from, from watching, you know, the, the, the cartoons and the, the sentimental family movies and Teen Angel and Touched by an Angel and all of those things that have built up over time to build this image of what heaven or the afterlife looks like for us. We're going to set that aside this morning. And let, let's start with a blank slate where we're going to allow Scripture to speak to us and to shape our imagination. All right? Are, are you with me with that? All right. Thank you. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself, will do, uh, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This glimpse that we have from the tail end of the book of Revelation, is the, the picture that we're given. Probably one of the, this, this is like the culmination of what Scripture is pointing to when it is talking about God's end goal with His creation. That in God's redeeming work, this is the picture that it's all working towards of this new Jerusalem coming down. Of God's dwelling place now being with His people. Of Him making all things new. The picture that we get in the New Testament, and I would argue throughout all of Scripture, is that is this picture of eternity where it's not us going to spend eternity in heaven, but of a physical resurrection and of heaven coming to earth. So the biggest switch we need to make in our mind when we think of what is happening for eternity is not us going to heaven, but more of heaven coming to earth. The other way around. Even Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Let your kingdom come and your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. The, the movement of God is from heaven to earth rather than taking us from earth into heaven. Heaven, this word that we have that is loaded with so much clouds and harps and wings and halos and all of that, is a word that, that for the ancient Hebrews became synonymous with God's rule and his reign and the place where he dwells. And it wasn't this idea that, that God rules and reigns from very far off somewhere, beyond the clouds where the Russian cosmonauts can see it or not see it when they get to space. But maybe almost to think of it, I don't know if it's healthy or not, but to use the, word, the language of dimensions. To use the idea of, of instead of heaven being out there and us being down here, 
Maybe, maybe heaven is awfully close to where we are. And there are places where we see overlaps of heaven and earth. So uh, an organization called the Bible Project did a great job of visualizing this. And they have a fantastic video uh, that it's seven minutes long. I wasn't going to show it this morning. But they use this idea of, do you remember when you were in like elementary school and the teacher had like these transparent colored gels, right? And then they would say, oh, this is the green, or this is the white, one of my colors. This is the yellow one and this is the blue one. And when you put them over each other, it makes green, right? I was trying to find some of those for this morning. They're hard to find these days. But this idea that, that heaven and earth may not be totally far apart from each other spatially, but may kind of overlap each other, and there might be these hot spots on earth where we see the overlap of heaven and earth. The way that the ancient Israelites talked about this was with temples and the idea of the tabernacle. That the temple was like this hot spot where heaven and earth overlap where you could go into the temple if you were this priest and you would experience almost this sense of heaven, of God's presence, of where God resides and reigns. That there are ways where we can see them coming together, glimpses of it. That sacrifices had to happen to be able to experience it, to even walk into the temple. So the idea that we have of of heaven isn't this place we go to when we die, but the place of God's rule and reign and presence that can be experienced in glimpses here and now on earth. But only in glimpses. The idea isn't to go there when we die, but to see heaven come to earth. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, which was a book that really helped to get some of the Bible scholarly stuff that's being said about this into the hands of the, the average person. I think we had a copy on the shelf. Someone might be borrowing it. They're, we can put it on a wait list if you want it. But he said, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. So maybe the best way for us to talk about this is not us going to heaven, but for this overlap for the hot spots of where heaven and earth meet to encompass all of creation. And I think that's the picture we get at the end of the book of Revelation, is God's dwelling places now with humanity. That his creation becomes the place where God's presence and rule and reign is fully that we experience that reality of heaven not just in glimpses, but in the fullness of what that overlap is meant to be. Now, if you were a first century follower of Jesus, say you were a, you know, from a Jewish background, you were trained up in the scriptures, you come to believe Jesus is the Messiah, you're, you know, somewhere in a church in Antioch in Syria, and you're reading the letters of Paul, and you are seeking to follow Jesus in this new way of life. And if you were magically teleported to where we are today and heard a lot of the Christian discussion of what heaven 
or afterlife those things look like, it would seem very foreign to you. It would be focusing on different things than they focused on. That they didn't care about whether their pet dogs went to heaven. In fact, they didn't have pet dogs. Dogs were scavengers on the streets that you stayed away from. Their hope wasn't in going to heaven, but was in a resurrection, was in life happening in a physical sense and in God's new creation. In fact, one of the earliest, uh, earliest statements of faith from the church uh, called the Nicene Creed, which was kind of the, the big statement of faith that in 381, churches from across the, the Roman Empire came together to agree on this. They said, towards the end, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That means it's the end of it. Their hope, their belief, was not in I die and my spirit spends eternity in the clouds. Their belief is looking forward to one day because Jesus was resurrected, we're all going to be resurrected. One day, because God is making all things new, He is going to make this world new. That their, their belief followed the pattern of what happened to Jesus is going to happen to the rest of creation. Our tendency to, to, to care more about going to heaven when we die, I think, is a, we see the short term without looking for the long term. We care more about, here's what happens the moment I pass away, rather than God's big cosmic plan of restoration for his entire creation. It, it makes me think of, like, when I played football. You're always working towards the, the, the first down, towards, like, Ten, every 10 yards, if you make 10 yards within four downs or, or three downs, depending if it's American or Canadian football, you, you can start over again. You can keep going. As long as you make to the 10, 10 yards, to the first down line, you're good. And, and it's almost like we celebrate, we're like doing like a touchdown celebration dance when we get to the 10-yard line. Like when we, when we get to the first down, rather than doing the big touchdown celebration when we get to the end zone. Like we, we care more about getting there instead of celebrating the fact that we actually score points when we get to the end zone. We're more worried about what happens when we die and we've built all of this idea of halos and angels and wings and harps and things like that based on this is what happens when I die, rather than the language Scripture uses of this is God's redemption plan for all of creation. So, what happens when we do die? Because obviously, you know, Christ isn't returning and the resurrection happening and creation being made new every time someone passes away. Like, if that's the ultimate hope, what happens in the meantime? And we touched a little bit on this last week in our Q&A time. But here's my understanding from the biblical witness of what happens if we were to die tomorrow afternoon, Christ hasn't returned yet, into the future. And I, I did a little, little timeline here. I'm not, I'm not usually a big timeline guy, 
especially when it comes to end of the world stuff. You know that about me. We've been through Revelation together. But here's, here's how I talk about it. I talk about it in the sense that when you become a follower of Christ, you begin to taste eternal life now. You begin to experience a glimpse of, of God's grand renewal by the fact that you have the presence of God dwelling in you. In fact, to use the language that we used earlier, you become kind of a hot spot of heaven and earth meeting by the fact that you have God's presence and he is renewing you and his kingdom is coming in you and you, you are experiencing the new life that God has for you. Then we die. After living our earthly life of however long that lives. And, and what we're given hints of in the New Testament is that when we die in Christ, that somehow we are present with Him. This is, I think, where we get the ideas of going to heaven when we die, and that that's where we are for eternity. The fact that when we die, somehow we are present with Christ. We see the language in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I, if I die, then, then I get to be with Christ. He's talking about, you know, he's living a persecuted life where he's in prison and might be executed. He's like, do you know what? That happens, I get to be with Christ. So do what you want, kind of thing. We also see it in Jesus' language with the thief on the cross, where he says, remember me in your kingdom, and Jesus turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so this sense of somehow those who are faithful to Christ will be with him when they die. We see it in the language that Jesus has when he's talking to his disciples in John 14, where he says, I'm not going to be with you forever. I'm actually going to prepare a place for you. And, and uh, in my Father's house are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a, a place for you. And we have this, this imagery that we've built in our kind of Western fantasizing about this of mansions, right? Of there, There's a mansion on a hill waiting for me somewhere. But a, a better way to understand it is, is Jesus preparing a place for us to be with him as we await the new creation that's coming. So there is this sense where we will, when we die, be with Christ if we belong to him. There's been ideas of maybe, you know, we there's like soul sleep and we just kind of fall into this, this sleep until the resurrection. And um, I think there's enough hinting in the New Testament that we are with Christ that that uh, would not be the case. And then, when Christ returns, there's physical resurrection. Where our bodies are raised, where our bodies are made new and restored and everything wrong and sick and decomposing of them is going to be restored. Where just as Christ's body was his physical body, but yet there's something magnificent and different about it where like he's appearing behind walls and yes, he still has the scars, but, but like he can do all kinds of things that we can't do right now. There will be a physical reality to eternity for us when Christ returns and we are raised that is not in line with the kind of we just float off and our souls are somewhere for eternity. Eternity for us in Christ will be 
a physically lived reality. And, and I think that's actually a, a beautiful thing because it, it shows us that what God has created, he values. Like when he created you and me and when he created us in these bodies, that, that it's not just something that he's like, okay, that, that's just a shell that you were in for the time being and you're going to break free from the shell. But our bodies are actually part of who we are. Like people experience us and know us by our bodies. Like we recognize faces and tone of voice and, and eye contact is, is so important. Like we are not who we are without our bodies. And so we will experience eternity physically resurrected. And we believe, and as we read in Revelation, that, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That all of creation will be restored and renewed and that there will be a sense of God dwelling with his people. That heaven and earth perfectly overlap in the way that God has intended. And we will spend eternity physically present with our God, living in his renewed creation. Now, how does this doctrine affect our life? That's the whole thing. This is why we're doing this, right? Not just to be like, okay, you need to fix what you believe. You need to. (laughs) But because this actually affects how we live. And I think one of the biggest things that that this reshifting of our thinking about what happens after this life for us is the reality that what we do here and now isn't disposable. Like God isn't just like sweeping out the trash after he returns and says, everything here is just a waste. We're starting over. It's going to be nothing like this. But there is a level of continuity between what is here and what is to come. There is this fact that God created His creation good and He is restoring His creation. He is getting rid of what has corrupted it, but He is making it new and whole. And so that says a lot about our bodies. right? When we talk about a physical resurrection and a physical eternity, that that if God is resurrecting our bodies and making them new and restoring them and making them you know, better than, than they've ever been in this life, then there's something dignifying about our bodies in that. That actually how we treat our bodies in this life says a lot about how we believe God sees our bodies in this life and for eternity. So, for, for example, if I have this picture that... that I go to heaven when I die and I'm just like, this body is just kind of the cage I'm trapped in right now. And someday I'm going to die and my spirit is going to go off away for eternity. Like, in a sense, it's like, who cares what I do for 70 years on this earth or 90 years or 125? Like, who, who cares about this, this sack of flesh if, if I'm just going to spend eternity and, and God's just going to destroy it and burn it all in fire or whatever. But if we believe that we are being physically resurrected, that our bodies are something that is going to be made eternal, then I'm going to see my body as something dignified and a gift from God and something He values. 
the way we treat our bodies now speaks to their value uh, and how we see it the way God does. If God is going to bring ultimate restoration and renewal, if he is going to bring his kind of peace and rule and heaven to earth in the new heavens and new earth, it also means that that we should probably be working at that now. I think there's a a lot of this sense uh, among Christians when we have this, we're just going to fly away to heaven, of the only work that we do as Christians is like we need to make people say yes to Jesus, get them saved so that they can fly off to heaven someday. Which, of course, we want people to come to know Christ. Like That's what we do. But it's actually even bigger than that. If, if God's new creation is going to be one of perfect justice, is going to be one where, where there is no more tears, where there, there is no poor or vulnerable, where there is no uh, taking advantage of the other, where this world is the way that God intended it, then we ought to be people advocating for and living out that kind of values here in the present. We have to be, to be fighting for those who, who are oppressed and marginalized and don't have a voice for themselves. Because that's what the kingdom of God is going to be like, where the, the, those who are, are, are oppressed will be lifted up. We live in light of what's coming in the present. It's not all just going to be swept away, but God sees the work that we're doing now as in line with what he's doing for eternity. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. this is, 1 Corinthians 15 is like Paul's love letter to the resurrection. Like, he's just, like, obsessed with the resurrection in this chapter. Like, Jesus got resurrected. It's amazing. And if you don't believe that happens, then where's your hope? Like, if Jesus was resurrected, we're all going to be resurrected. It's going to be fantastic. The last verses of this chapter, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. His whole, like, how this doctrine affects your life in this chapter, if we believe in a physical resurrection, if we believe that our bodies are going to be made new, his whole point is keep pushing and doing the work of the Lord because it's not in vain, because it's purposeful, because it's somehow going to be seen as part of God's eternity that is coming. Our job in light of of God's renewal process is to be doing the work of renewal now. And, and we're responsible for it. Jesus teaches in a, a parable of the, the ten minus, where there's this, this uh, man who's going to be crowned a king, and he, he goes and he gives money to a bunch of his servants. And he says, I'm going away and be responsible with, with what I've given you. And when he comes back, one servant said, okay, I've taken the money that you've given me, and I've invested it, and I've, I've I've gotten 10 times what you've given me because I've been responsible and fruitful and used what you've given me in the time that you were away. And another servant did a similar thing, and you know his return wasn't quite as big, but he, he, he was responsible with what God gave him or what the, the master gave him while he was away. And then there was another one who, uh, I just kind of sat on the, the gift that you gave me, and, and I didn't really do anything with it. 
and, and the master's upset with him. And the one who, who invested and, and, and was responsible with the gift that he was given, the master says, you're going to be in charge of ten cities in, in my kingdom. The one who you know, multiplied it not quite as much, you're in charge of four cities. And, and the other one, what he was given was, was given to the others. This parable that Jesus teaches, he, we, we read in, in the Gospel of Luke that he taught it outside Jerusalem to a group of people who were expecting God's kingdom to come like very soon. They're expecting, like, all right, God's going to establish his kingdom. It, it's, it's happening now, so we don't need to worry about what happens in the meantime. But Jesus' whole parable is like, it's going to take a while. I'm going to be gone for a bit. But he's given us gifts and work to do and ways where we are called to be responsible in the meantime while the king is away before he returns. And from what it sounds like, that he's going to reward us based on our faithfulness and fruitfulness in that time. So we are called to to be good stewards with the time between Christ's resurrection and his return. To be about his work to not squander that time or what he's given us. Something I need to qualify, though, in all of this, is in our living out the reality of God's future kingdom in the present, we're not like bringing the kingdom of God. We're not building God's kingdom here on earth, where if we you know, set up a, a government that cares for the poor enough that it's like we're establishing God's kingdom and he's going to come back kind of thing but we are showing the world some pretty beautiful glimpses of what is coming. We're to show them some of these hot spots, so to speak, so that they can see the hope and the beauty of what God is going to do. My last um, way that this doctrine should affect our life, and maybe this is more just like an application point for me, um, is we shouldn't be an idiot about correcting people's theology about heaven. This, this topic for me is like something I get really excited about. It's something I talk about a lot and love to talk about. But as we kind of see the bigness and the beauty of God's actual plan for all of creation, and how much better and more beautiful it is than like, Aunt Sue baking pies with her kittens for eternity. It, there can be a level of like, your picture of heaven is, is lame and stupid and let me bulldoze you with what's right. Welcome to the sermon this morning. <laughs> a funeral's the worst place to tell someone their idea of heaven is wrong. I've, I've sat through a lot of funerals and heard a lot of things about heaven. And, and I understand for a lot of people, the language that they use is, is bringing them a sense of comfort in the midst of a very difficult time. And so I'm never going to come up to someone after their eulogy or their, you know, and say, well, actually, this was wrong. And this, this is what's actually going to happen. So like, that's not helpful to people. But... What we can do is, is instead of being corrective, to show them the more beautiful picture. To say, look at what God plans to do. 
Look at how He intends for you to be with Him and for Him to be with you for eternity. That He he actually loves your body enough to want to resurrect it and make it whole so that you can spend eternity living with Him. That the work of your hands isn't, isn't worthless and disposable. But God intends for you to be doing the work of your hands in a fruitful, flourishing way for eternity. Like imagine, imagine doing your dream job in a way that is never tiring or exhausting, but you're always bringing about the good work that you want to do. Like imagine if you were a carpenter and you, you loved building, like doing beautiful woodwork. And, and, and you, you could do things that contribute to the community and to the society in a way that is reciprocal and beautiful. Where, where what you do with your hands actually matters? What if it was more than just a giant choir event where we're just singing the same song over and over and over? What if it's more than just we're spirits wisping around in the clouds? What if it's more than just baking apple pies with cats? What if it's more than, than just I get to eat my favorite food? What if we actually get to live in the kind of creation God wanted for us all along, untainted by sin? To follow God's beautiful design and to see how well things work when it's His way. I think a great thing about adjusting our picture of of eternity is it helps people show people the hope that's actually there in Jesus rather than the, the kind of wishy-washy sentimentalism of going to the clouds. It's a bigger picture. It's a better picture. It's a picture where God wins because it's not just I'm trashing the world so you can go to heaven. No, I'm redeeming it all and making it all new. C.S. Lewis wraps up his Chronicles of Narnia series with um, a book called The Final Battle. And on the final pages, the, the children experience the afterlife. And the way that it's talked about is like they're running and always running faster and faster but never growing tired. Where they're not, they're not constrained by exhaustion. This idea of always going further up and further in in closeness to God. The line repeats over and over and over, further up and further in. And and Lewis kind of finishes off kind of imagining what this might be like, where he says, all their adventures in Narnia were but the cover and title page of the great and true story. We have something actually to look forward to. Something that's not going to be boring. Something that we're not going to be wishing we brought a magazine. We have hope of a restored eternity where we get to be with our God, to live with Him for eternity in a way more fulfilling than we can even imagine. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that we would be able to submit our imaginations to you. That we would let you reshape our, our picture of, of your restoring work that you're doing. 
Yeah, we, and sometimes we've, we've settled, I think, for, for a picture of, of your game plan. One that is, is diminishing. But you have so much more. God, I pray that, um, that as we ponder these things and as we look forward, that it would be something that propels us to to doing good work here and now. To, to seeing your creation and the bodies you've given us as dignified things. To, to see the, the beauty of what people can get in on by following Christ is so much greater than we would have thought. Help us to live in light of the eternity that you are bringing Help us to be citizens of that kingdom now. That we might be these strange hot spots of heaven and earth coming together, even right now. That the world might see, might catch a glimpse of what's coming through your church. In Christ's name we pray.